Hi everybody at MAFRA. Um, good to be back with you, albeit by video. Uh, thanks again to Wes Jackson for videoing me today. Uh, but we've, we're coming to the end of this first part of the book of Revelation. So we're, we're finishing our little series on Revelation next year. God willing, we'll get back and look at the rest of the book. But we're coming to the seventh of the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, the letter to the Laodiceans. In in some ways, this is probably one of the probably the most famous of the letters. It's uh, it's it's often referred to, and not always well used, if the truth's known. But let's pray and let's ask God to help us as we consider His Word together today. Uh, Heavenly Father, again we say thank you for Your Word. Uh, we ask that You would help us to be people who treasure Your Word, who tremble at Your Word, and so we pray today, according to Your promise, that You would instruct us from Your Word. We pray that you would teach us and uh, rebuke us, correct us and train us in righteousness, that we uh, might live lives that are worthy of our calling in Jesus, and so that our church might be one that meets with the pleasure of Jesus. Uh, so we ask that you would help us to listen well today and to heed what you're saying to us by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Revelation began with John on the island of Patmos having a vision of the risen Lord Jesus, the exalted Lord Jesus, the glorified Lord Jesus, and he was standing amidst seven lampstands. And it's explained that those seven lampstands represent the churches. Now, why would a lamp represent a church? Because a church is meant to bear witness to the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, the ch uh, Jesus' churches, wherever they are, whether they're in Asia Minor or central Gippsland are meant to be Jesus' lights to the world. So Jesus is the light of the world. His churches are his lights to the world. And so these seven letters have addressed in many places uh, the threats to effective Christian witness, the effect that they're threats to being a good light in the world. And so just to backtrack a little, John was on the island of Patmos. He uh, counts himself a partner in tribulation a partner in the trouble that the churches, the members of the churches are facing. And he's on the island of Patmos, he says, for the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So we believe that John was imprisoned there. Uh, we know that it was a, a rock quarry on, on Patmos and chances are he was doing hard labour. But the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him and instructed him to write down the nature of this vision and to send it in these letters to the churches. In fact, the whole of Revelation is a letter to all of those churches and to us as well. So John wrote on behalf of Jesus to the church in Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and last of all to Laodicea. Now Jesus was fond of telling stories. We looked at this a little bit last week when I was along with you in Mafra in the introductory talk to the Gospels. But uh, Amongst the most famous of Jesus' parables, and, and the, one, the first one that he gives an explanation to, is his story of the sower, where a man goes out and sows seed, uh, and the seed has a variety of results. But the third of those results is that seed falls on weedy soil, and the seed of, of the word, which is what Jesus says it is, the seed represents the word of God, grows and is tangled by the weeds that are competing with it. And in Mark's telling of this uh, parable story in Mark chapter 4 verse 19, Jesus explains that the weeds are symbolic, they stand for the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. These are the things that cause people who have begun walking with Jesus to be unfruitful. 
We know that any farmer who plants a crop wants his crop to come into head and then be harvested and, and taken away to be turned into bread. The crop itself is not the point, it's what it becomes. So the fruitfulness of a crop is judged when it's harvested. Well, the things that prevent the crop coming to harvest, according to Jesus in this weedy story, are the cares of the world, just the everyday stresses and strains, the troubles, the deceitfulness of riches, wealth that will trick us into believing that all we need is a little bit more money and we'll be okay, and the desire for other things. Well, you can probably read into that what you like. It's just all the other business of the world, the, the glitz, the glamour, the things that other people clamour for. These are the things that Jesus says will stop a person who's begun walking with him from being an effective witness. Well, welcome to Laodicea, because they had them all. And that's why Jesus sends the letter to them. So we're going to read Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22 now. Uh, follow it along uh, in your Bibles and keep your Bibles open, please. But this is Jesus' letter to a smug church. Revelation 3, starting at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realising that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So... Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Laodicea, a little bit of background here, Laodicea was the seventh of the church, churches written to and it was in a, a three-way partnership, um, a, a tri-city arrangement with the city of Hierapolis and the nearby city of Colossae. And neither Hierapolis or Colossae, they both had churches, but neither of them were addressed in these seven letters to the churches. But Laodicea was a wealthy administrative centre. It was a place where people went to hear legal cases heard. It was a judicial centre. It was a wealthy city and it, so it had a banking um, facility as well. Uh, it was well known in the region for being a wealthy banking centre and also a place where there was much trade. It was very well situated for incoming and outgoing goods. So Laodicea was the most prominent of these three cities, Hierapolis and Colossae, and it was the wealthiest. Uh, it was very famous and one of the things that made it rich was uh, the, the rich black wool that was grown in the area, which was turned into very fashionable garments. So Laodicea was also a fashion centre. People as far back as those ancient days loved to dress up and to be fashionable as well. It's no different from the way things are today. People expressed their wealth by what they wore. It was a way of showing off. And Laodicea was a fashion centre, particularly famous for its rich black wool. Uh, 
but it was also a, a center of healing. So that there was a temple in Laodicea to the God of healing. In those days, every different area of life had its own God or goddess. So there was a God of healing and he had a temple in Laodicea. Attached to it was a school of medicine where people could come and learn medical uh, ideas. And as well as that, the Laodicean city was famous for the production of an ointment which was put on eyes to help with eye diseases. Now think about it, remember all these things because we're going to come back to them. But Laodicea, like Philadelphia last week, was prone to earthquakes. And uh, at one stage in AD 60, the entire city was almost completely destroyed. Now there were other cities in the area that were also destroyed by the same earthquake or at least badly damaged. And the uh, imperial government in Rome offered financial help to repair the damage to the cities. Laodicea was so proud of itself, so proud of its wealth and its self-sufficiency that they declined any offer of financial help from Rome and said, no, we'll fix it ourselves. So Laodicea was wealthy. It was a fashion centre. It was a place that uh, was into healing and, and medicine. And it was a place that was pretty sure it could do everything it needed on its own. What about the church in Laodicea? We read about it elsewhere in the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed. But um, in Acts chapter 19, we read of the exploits of the great missionary, the Apostle Paul. And one of his co-workers was a man called Epaphras. So while Paul was involved in the city of Ephesus, the first of the seven churches, Epaphras went on into the hinterland. And we read in Colossians 1 and also Colossians 4 that Epaphras established or planted the church in uh, Laodicea, along with the one in Hierapolis and Colossae. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he talks about a letter from Laodicea. Scholars wonder whether that's actually the letter of the Ephesians, because in the original manuscripts, there's no place name at the beginning of the letter to Ephesus. Uh, it's probably a circular, circular letter that went around all of the churches in the region. And so when he says to the Colossians, make sure you also read the letter from Laodicea, he may be referring to the letter of Ephesians that he's already written. But nonetheless, Colossians was a place that had benefited from Paul's ministry, that had benefited from Epaphras' ministry, and it had been written to, to by Paul. So in other words, it was a well-placed and advantageous church. Now, as is common in all of the seven letters, uh, the Lord Jesus addresses the church uh, and, and, and reminds us of something that had been said about him in chapter 1. Now, there's no direct quote from chapter 1 in his address to the uh, Laodiceans, but nonetheless, nonetheless there's an allusion. Um, and so the address to the Laodiceans is to, from the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, that word Amen or Amen, depending how you want to say it, uh, that's a reminder of Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, where... Yahweh is described as being the God of truth. Now, literally, the Hebrew word is Amen. Amen is a word which means so be it or yes. It's a word that says this has been verified or confirmed. We're agreeing that this thing is a true statement. So Yahweh is the God of Amen. This is another indication that Jesus, throughout the book of Revelation, is represented as being God. He's divine. He is the Amen. He is the yes. He is the divine, so be it. And so Jesus is a faithful witness. 
uh, a faithful and true witness. That's how he was described in chapter 1, verse 5. Um, he's also the firstborn from the dead in chapter 1, verse 5. And here we re read that he's the beginning of God's creation. Now, we know that Jesus was an agent in God's creation. The Apostle John, in his gospel, he writes about how Jesus was with God at the beginning and, and everything was made by him and through him. Uh, we read in Colossians, no less, that, um, that, that Jesus was the agent of God's creation. So yes, he was present at and he was involved in the creation of the whole world. But there's more to it than that in this little sentence here. When we read that he's the faithful and true witness and the beginning of God's creation, it means that as much as he was involved in the first creation, by his resurrection from the dead, he is the instrument through which God is going to perform the new creation, which is the goal that God's walk, working towards. This world is not all there is. It's not as good as it's going to be. One day, everything will be transformed. And all of these seven letters need to be read in light of what God is one day going to do. And we as Christians need to live our lives in light of, one day, of what one day God is going to do. So Jesus is the faithful and true witness He's borne witness to his father so faithfully that it cost him his life. And because he was raised from the dead, he is the beginning of all that God's going to do one day. He's the first fruits. He's the, the first example of someone who's been raised from the dead and given an eternal body and an eternal life. His, his life was eternal anyway, but he's now got an eternal body such as we'll one day have. Now it's customary in these seven letters that after Jesus has introduced himself, harking back to the description of himself in chapter 1, that he has a word of praise for the church. But unlike all of the other six churches, Jesus has nothing good to say about the Laodiceans. Have you heard that old uh, phrase, uh, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all? Clearly Jesus didn't agree. There is a place for criticism. And Jesus is the one with eyes of fire who can see all the way to the heart. Jesus knows every word that's in our mind, not just on our lips. Jesus knows us through and through. When he looks at a church as the physician of the soul and diagnoses it, we'd better listen up. There is nothing that merits Jesus' praise in the church at Laodicea. And for that, they should be very, very worried. But he has got things to blame them for. And so chapter, chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, Jesus lays it out. And he says, their problem is, he says, I know your works, such as they are. And he says, then you're neither cold nor hot. Or would that you were rather either cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm, he says. That's how they are, they're lukewarm. Now that's a, a phrase which has often been misunderstood. Does Jesus want them to be red hot, red hot for the gospel? Or would he prefer that they were just completely cold and just ignore him and, and, and pay him no mind at all? Is that what he wants? No, I don't think it is because it's Jesus' will that everyone come to salvation. It's not, it's a, it brings him no pleasure to know that there's people who rejected him. Both hot and cold here are pictured as being good. It's the lukewarmness that's the problem. Now we know this from the background to the letter. So all of the the letters that are addressed to these seven churches, they, they have ingredients that remind us of the Old Testament, but they also have ingredients that speak to the local situation. And Laodicea is no different. So Laodicea 
was uh, nearby Hierapolis, and Hierapolis was famous and continues to be famous for its hot springs. Now these hot springs were sought out for their medicinal value. People would come from miles around to go to the Hierapolis hot springs, which were massive and which were very visible with all of the uh, chemical deposits that they leave behind. And people would bathe in them, I suppose, to ease their aches and pains. But people believed that there was healing properties in the hot springs of Hierapolis. And so that's what they look like even today. People still venture there and enjoy the hot water. Now that water was piped through to Laodicea. Laodicea did not have a reliable water source of its own. And so water was put, this boiling hot water from Hierapolis was piped through. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And because of its high chemical component, uh, the minerals in there, it was undrinkable. To drink this lukewarm water, you would throw up because it was just so unpalatable. But nearby Colossae was famous for its cold springs. And so Colossae had cold, pure and refreshing springs. So on the one hand, you've got hot springs, which are really good for medicine. And then on the other hand, you've got the life-giving, refreshing cold water of Colossae. And it was also piped to Laodicea, but by the time it arrived, it was also lukewarm. So at their source, they're both good. They, they, they both do a good job. But like the result of the water being piped to Laodicea, in pipes that are still evident even today, uh, by the time the water got there, it was lukewarm and undrinkable. It had to be treated further before the Laodiceans could drink it without vomiting. So Jesus continues. What he's saying is, don't you, don't you realise you make me sick? That's the way Grant Osborne, a modern commentator, puts it. Don't you realise that you make me sick? Their lukewarmness, their lack of fruit, their lack of works, their lack of witness makes Jesus sick. And the reason that it makes him so sick is because they're delusional. They actually think they're doing really well. Now notice there that they feel pretty good about themselves. They say in verse 17, 17 I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. They think they've got it all. That's called self-esteem. Do you know what self-esteem is? Self-esteem means your estimate of yourself, the value you put on yourself. Now, we live in a world that's addicted to self-esteem. And being a teacher, I heard about it all the time. Oh, you've got to do this, got to do this. You've got to boost the kid's self-esteem. Well, I want to tell you that a, a bloated, delusional self-esteem is actually harmful. Because to be saved, to understand that you have a need that only Jesus can meet, which is what it means to become a Christian at all, you need to realise that you're not complete. And it doesn't hurt to have a bad feeling about yourself if it leads you to Jesus. But these people felt so good about themselves that they were smug. And they didn't need anything, including Jesus. And that's a dangerous self-delusion to entertain for very long at all. So this church in Laodicea was rich and self-satisfied. We could say they were too much like their city. They were Laodiceans rather than Christians. They'd taken on the shape of their city or they hadn't ever left it behind. It's no wonder that there's no persecution mentioned here. The other churches that stood out because they followed Jesus, because they were faithful witnesses prepared to courageously follow every aspect of what it meant to belong to Jesus, the Laodiceans weren't interested. They just blended right in. There was nothing to persecute. 
And so this rich and self-satisfied church contrasts with the church at Smyrna who Jesus says, you're in poverty, but actually spiritually you're rich. Remember that the deceitfulness of wealth is one of the things that keeps Jesus' people from being fruitful? Riches are actually something to be wary of. The book of Proverbs says, give me neither poverty nor riches. In other words, somewhere in between. But that grasping, that lust for more money is actually going to be a trap that has ended many Christians' uh, faithful walk. Um, it's a snare. Read 1 Timothy 6 and you'll read that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and it shipwrecks people's faith. So wealth, as much as it might seem like it can provide for us, is actually a trap that we need to be very careful of because the Laodiceans, it was part of their self-delusion. They were, they were materially rich but spiritually poor. The Smyrnaeans had it all over them because they were the opposite. Jesus says in Luke 6, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In other words, if you're rich now, that's as good as it gets. There'll be no reward. If, if all you've set your sights on is material riches now, he says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And that's exactly the situation that the Laodiceans are in. So they're wretched, says Jesus. It means they're doomed. They're unhappy now, but they're doomed to come. They're pitiable, they're pathetic specimens, people who just have no genuine self-awareness. They think they're doing well and they're not. So they're pitiable, they're the objects of pity. They're poor, they're blind, and they're naked. Now that's really interesting. They are in urgent need of resurrection or new creation power. They need the impetus of, of faithful walking with Jesus and spirit-led and spirit-empowered uh, faithfulness to the cause of Jesus. That's what they need if they're to be the, the kind of church that Jesus wants. And so their true condition, not the way they see themselves, but their true condition as diagnosed by Dr. Jesus needs an urgent remedy. Their poverty, they need to buy gold from him, uh, gold refined by fire. Uh, the testing of our faith through adversity proves to us and to others that we actually belong and it refines our faith it makes it more precious it makes it takes the rough rough edges off us that's what they need first peter 1 verse 7 talks about the same thing so for their poverty they need to put aside their wealth and they need to accept the suffering that will come with jesus understand following jesus understanding that that will will refine them that'll be much better for them than being rich and self-satisfied they live in a fashion-conscious city. Perhaps they're even involved in the wool trade. But Jesus says, you're not well-dressed, you're actually naked. And nakedness throughout the Bible is a symbol of shame. So God who sees the heart looks at them and he doesn't see fancy clothes. He sees people who should be ashamed of themselves. And they're not. They need holy garments, garments that only Jesus can provide. White garments of, of purity. Uh, the kind of garments that will enable you to live well in the new creation. But they live in this world where they've got an eye ointment that, that can fix everything, uh, eye ailments, but Jesus says, don't you know you're actually blind? Um, they need spiritual insight, insight from uh, the one who has the eyes of fire. Second Corinthians 4 verse 4 says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. These people are living like unbelievers because they're blind, says Jesus. So there's this urgent call 
They need to heed Jesus' loving discipline. That's a reference to Proverbs chapter 3 because Jesus disciplines those he loves. That discipline should lead to them repenting. So this letter is meant to issue in a change of heart and a change of mind and a change of behaviour. And so verse 20, possibly the most famous verse in all of the book of Revelation, is a widely misunderstood verse, but in it there's rebuke, there's challenge, and there's a wonderful promise. Now you may have seen the very famous painting if you've been to St Paul's Cathedral in London. Uh, the English artist Holman Hunt back in the 19th century painted a picture called uh, The Light of the World. So it's a large painting in St Paul's Cathedral. Uh, it's been reproduced over and over again. It's actually a very good painting, but the theology may be a bit dodgy and it may have led people to misunderstand Revelation 3.20. I've heard Revelation 3.20, chances are you have as well. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens to me, I will come in. I've heard that preached as an evangelistic uh, text and I've heard it laboured on very emotionally. Um, so in, in the church of my youth, there was an evangelistic me message every Sunday night followed by an appeal, uh, which was often very long and people were asked to, to come to Jesus. I'm not saying that, that a lot didn't. I responded to an appeal one night and I believe I was genuine. Uh, but the way that Revelation 3.20 was, was used, they'd, they'd say, Jesus is standing at the door of your life knocking. And if you put off following him tonight, that knock will grow quieter and quieter and quieter until you can barely hear it. Well, that's not what is what pictured here, uh, is what is pictured here. Uh, Holman Hunt has a lovely painting, but theologically it might be a bit dodgy. Uh, let's think about this. Dale Ralph Davis is a wonderful Old Testament scholar and he's written a book on the doctrine of the church called The House That Jesus Built. In, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. In Matthew 18, verse 20, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm among them. What's happening in Revelation 3.20 is that Jesus has to knock and request entry to the house that he built, to the house that he bought with his own blood. He says a true church is one where he's in the midst, in the middle. This is a church that has denied him access. They should be listening very carefully because a church without Jesus is not a church at all because it's the house that he built. It's his body, it's his, uh, it's his household. Uh, that's the language that's used. Uh, throughout the Bible. But Jesus says if they do repent, if they change their ways, if they buy gold from him, if they take his diagnosis and have their eyesight fixed, their spiritual eyesight, if they get their white garments, if they repent, if they change, if they allow the working of him through his Holy Spirit, then he'll come and eat with them. Now sharing a meal then as is now, it's a gesture of friendship. Um, it's hard to be an enemy of a person that you sit down and eat with. Jesus says, I will come and eat with you. And it's a picture of the difference that Jesus will make in their lives now of, of an ongoing experience of his fellowship by his Holy Spirit. But it's also a foretaste of the life to come because by the time you get to Revelation 19, you'll realise that one of the beautiful pictures of the eternal state of the new creation is of a wedding feast. And so it's an anticipation now of what will one day be an eternal and ongoing reality. 
Jesus says, I will come and dine with you. And so the reading finishes with a promise. Those who overcome will rule with Jesus. What that means is he promises to share his reign because he is the world's true king. It's Christ or Messiah. Uh, he'll share his reign with all who belong to him. That's a theme which comes right throughout the Bible. You'll read it in Daniel. You'll read it in, in the Gospels. You'll read it in the Epistles. Those who belong to Jesus will reign with him. What an extraordinary privilege. But Jesus overcame through his faithful witness. He conquered. He had victory. Uh, all those words mean the same thing. It's the Greek word nikeo, which means to be uh, the victor or to overcome. How did Jesus overcome? Through his faithful witness. Now, his faithful witness that led to his death resulted in his resurrection, but he's now been exalted to the right hand of God and he is presently reigning. He will transfer the sphere of his reign from heaven to earth when he returns and he will share that reign with his people. And so because of that, the Laodiceans must anticipate that in the way they live now. They need to humbly repent if they're to share in that because only the humble and the faithful, not the proud, not the self-sufficient, only the humble and faithful will be exalted. So just as we finish, uh, it's interesting to look back over these seven letters. The letter to Ephesus, they were going to lose their lampstand. Uh, they'd, they'd fallen away from their first love. Jesus threatens to cause them to disappear as a church. Smyrna, they're a faithful church. They're told to persevere. Pergamon was a compromised church. They needed to repent. Thyatira was a compromised church. They were told to repent. Sardis was a compromised church. It was told to repent. Philadelphia was a faithful church. They were told to persevere. Just continue. Keep doing what you're doing. Laodicea, nothing good. It's going to be spat out unless they repent. Can you see a pattern there? Because there is one. And the pattern is illustrative. It's actually a very important part of the structure. Both Ephesus and Laodicea are bad. Bad examples. Nothing there to emulate. Smyrna and Philadelphia, the two, the next two on the inside of, of those bad ones, they're both good. But then the three middle churches are all compromised. They're halfway. This is a, an ancient literary technique that's called a chiasm. Chi was the Greek letter that looks like a, a bit like an X. And it's a way of describing a, a literary pattern where the outside works its way into the inside and each of the outside bits equal the each other as do the next bits along the way. So look how it works. Ephesus and, and Laodicea lose the lampstand, spat out bad churches. Then the good churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And in the middle, the three compromised churches. But right in the heart of these seven letters is chapter 2, verse 23, addressed to Thyatira. But look what it says. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Each of the seven letters has material for all of the other churches as well, and not just for all the other churches, but all churches everywhere. Thyatira's message was for all the churches. And each church, and we as well, need to remember that Jesus searches hearts and minds. And he will repay because he knows and judges fairly. So why are there seven churches singled out when there are at least ten in the area? Well, seven's the perfect number. This is a way of saying these set of messages are for these seven churches, but for all churches everywhere. This is a picture of, of, of the possibilities 
uh, that, that are open and, and will be found in all churches. Remember that every one of the letters finishes with hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Don't just listen to your letter, listen to the others. And for us in Mafra, we need to listen to them all. Um, because you see, Jesus says, to those I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. There's something in each of the letters for all of us. They're, they're a model of, of, of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to avoid if we want to be sincere for followers of Jesus. So he who has an ear, we've all got ears, we need to listen carefully. Notice that it's in the present tense, which means what the Spirit is saying. So what's the Spirit saying to Mafra through these letters? Because this is the living, breathing, eternal word of God and it's speaking to us today. It's saying to us that Balaam and Jezebel are still active. The temptation to sexual sin is still out there. And it's present in churches, too many churches, and it brings them undone. But so too are the quieter, easier to ignore sins of pride and self-sufficiency. They're still active, perhaps even more active. They're still to be watched out for. But the message of the overall message of these seven letters is that all churches are always mixed congregations. There'll be people who are faithful. There'll be people who are not faithful. There'll be people who are zealous for the Lord Jesus. There'll be others who are indifferent and who treat their walk with Jesus as a matter of casualness. Watch out. All churches are mixed churches. And so these seven churches represent all churches everywhere at all times. And it invites us in Mafra to ask, what is the Spirit saying to us? So what parallels can we see? It'd be worth reading back over them all again and saying, well, what parallels can we see in our church, in other churches? Uh, which church are we most like? And, and let's not pretend, let's be honest. Let's use these as a diagnostic tool. Uh, don't let's fall into the trap of self-delusion, of thinking that, uh, that we've got it all together where there may be more work still to do. Well, how is our church's lampstand? What's the quality of our witness as a church and as a group of individuals together? What, what's the quality of our witness? Does anybody know that we follow Jesus? Now, if you've got reason to be critical of anything to do with the church, the next question is, well, what are you doing about it? Because the easiest position to occupy in any organisation, and especially the church, is armchair critic. And you're not called to be an armchair critic, you're called to be a participant. You're called to be a member who contributes your gift to the life of the body. So if you can see something that needs fixing, the question is, what will you do to help? Uh, if you've identified it, then share it gently and lovingly with others, and especially those who, who have some leadership in the church. Write to me, you can talk to Dave, Chris or Greg or Nathan. Or, um, but, but do something about it. Don't whinge, but do something about it. Um, because that's what it's, it's all about. Read back over the seven letters. See which ones seem to fit with us, but use it as words from Jesus by his Holy Spirit so that we can correct ourselves, repent, we can keep coming back to the standard that Jesus calls us to, remembering that he's the one who bought us with his blood, that he's building us as a church, and he's doing that for his glory and preparing us for our spot in the eternal life and the reign with him that he's promised to all who are faithful and who overcome. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. 
Uh, we, we, these are precious words to us and we pray that you would help us not to underestimate them or to take them lightly. Please help them, us each to apply them to ourselves and to our church, not sitting back thinking, oh yes, this is a message for someone else or for some other church. Help us to take these things to heart. We ask that by your spirit, you would help us to live in the light of these things, to walk faithfully and patiently uh, and, and to bear a solid, strong witness for the Lord Jesus while we wait for him to return to make everything new. We thank you for your wonderful promises. We thank you for the salvation uh, that, that means that our sins have been paid for. And we pray that you would help us to live lives that are worthy of our calling. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll see you next time. God bless you all.